Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. For tonight's purposes, this is just going to be a springboard, um, which means I'm not going to expound this and everything on it, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. <coughs> Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the word of God. I thank you for the fact that it does give us all things that pertain to life and the godliness. It does give us instruction in every area of our life, regardless of generations, regardless of cultures. And I thank you that we can go to the word of God, even in a sensitive matter like this, and, and find our answers. And so, Father, we pray that as we approach this subject tonight, that certainly we would be consistent with what your word has revealed to us, that we would not add to it, that we would not take from it, and that, uh, Father, we would get the mind of God as we even talk on this subject, and I pray for wisdom and guidance for me as I lead in it, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. I want you to know that, um, first of all, this will not be a one-part message, nor, as I will make comments in a few minutes, will it go on and on. Uh, but one of the challenges that I have had personally in preparing this material, and in, in presenting the material, I should say, is the study and the research that was done on the subject. Now, that may sound strange to you. But I want you to know, for example, that I did, first of all, biblically, look up every single reference in Scripture related to wine, strong drink, alcohol, uh, you won't find that word per se, drunkenness, um, and um, have studied them out, listed them down, went through every single one of them and the passages and tried to look at that. In addition to that, I have tried to do uh, adequate uh, research so that we understand the scriptures uh, properly in understanding this subject material. And I have looked at all kinds of statistics uh, with things that are going on. So one of the challenges I know that I, I personally, just to mention that to you, have uh, gone through is just the manner of presentation of that material and condensing the material down. So in saying that, allow a little grace if it does not particularly come out in the order that you, as you're listening to this material, might have preferred it might come out. Tonight we come to the next area of practical wisdom in the book of Proverbs that I feel needs to be addressed in our personal lives. In case you lost track, as we said we'd do the book of Proverbs, it was intended to be topical. It was intended to deal with aspects. I haven't even dealt with the family aspects of it yet or some other areas that we'll get into. We're still dealing with the personal life. And uh, as you know, one of the topics, for example, we dealt with was anger. Well, in coming to the next area, it is the area of alcohol or the area slash drinking. And you know when I say drinking, we're not dealing with H2O. We're not talking about water. 
We're not talking about juice. We're talking about alcohol, and we're talking about drinking because the scriptures do address, I believe, this area. Uh, as a matter of opening comments to you, this subject, like a number that we've been hitting upon as we've been going through the scriptures, is a very controversial area. There is absolutely no question about it. It is often an area of contention and an area of conflict. Personally, it becomes an area of contention and conflict for individuals. It also becomes an area of contention and conflict within the Christian community. It, has, uh, it is a subject that has and probably will continue to split churches. It is a matter of, uh, in dealing with the subject, because people's opinions are so strong on whatever they might believe, it has resulted in split churches. It has resulted, in uh, my personal opinion, in observation now and in my Christian life, it has resulted in leadership often being called dishonest. That is by members of the assembly, where they look at the scriptures and saying, you, you have come to that area, and while you profess you believe what the scriptures say, you are dishonest because you will not teach the scriptures in this area as they need to be taught. So it is an area that has resulted in leadership being called dishonest for a lack of addressing the subject. It is also an area, in mentioning it, that has been used as a vice under the concept, quote unquote, of Christian liberty. And under that cloak of Christian liberty, and in case some of you do not know my position, first of all, on Christian liberty, I will give it to you very quickly again. I do not believe there is any such thing. I believe the scriptures clearly teach that our Christian life is one of liberty and everything that we do is to be the glory of done to the glory of God. I don't believe that the scriptures teach that I have one life that I live here and then there's this area somewhere of Christian liberty with all these questionable things. I think that's just part of our whole Christian life. And I think Christians have gotten into this subject because of Paul stating, don't let your liberty or freedom become an occasion for sin. And that has opened up this ball of wax that's been in Christianity for a long time. And because of that, on the other side of the coin there, and this vice, I believe it is an area that has caused many a believer to stumble. I believe that uh, some people, and even in our own assembly here, I know it for a fact, that some came out of a background of drinking and alcoholism and uh, then get stumbled in this area and have been. I know it is also an area, to be quite frank, just in laying the foundation here, that sometimes under the guise of Christian liberty becomes nothing more than an excuse for wanting to drink. I know I've shared this with you before, but some of my closest friends 
<coughs> as believers and a group that we hung around with, and just to take it home, in, in Fellowship Bible Church when we were in North Andover, uh, wanted to prove their liberty in the area of drinking and some of the air, uh, people that I grew up with in the Lord uh, took that and they started to meet to have these opportunities to drink and a number of those folks are not even anywhere near walking with the Lord right now. It was nothing more than an excuse for them to abuse something that they really did not have in my opinion, a right approach to even from the beginning. Now, in saying that, you might be saying, where is he going with this? I'm only laying the foundation so that you understand that this is a problem area, and it is an area where there's accusations being made all over the place regarding it. And some examples I'll give you very quickly um, right from the get-go is things go from this situation. Uh, statements are made that all consumption of alcohol is sin. There are many a person that would make that statement, that any consumption whatsoever of alcohol is sin, and if it's sin for me, it's sin for you. There is also those that say no Christian should ever consume alcohol. And... We have situations that say that Jesus Christ himself would never have produced fermented wine and they would take the position, and I'm not saying where I am on any of this yet, you'll learn, but they would strongly take the position that they are defending God and would try to defend him even uh, because they cannot conceive that he would ever uh, do something like that. That's one side. You want to get the other side of the coin? The other side of the coin <coughs> is today, 21st century, just to bring it home, pastors, a number of pastors, are encouraging their congr congregations to drink beer and to drink wine and from the pulpit are even encouraging it. I think that's foolishness, first of all, without any teaching or whatever. And on that side of the coin, in case you think I'm kind of out in left field, let me give you a real situation. I don't know this guy from a hole in the wall. Some of you may when I say the name. But there is a pastor by the name of Mark Driscoll who, and the reason I pick on him, he publicly repented to his congregation and to the Christian community for, quote unquote, not having been involved in drinking alcohol earlier in his ministry. So he publicly went on as a pastor, Mark Driscoll, to apologize that he didn't drink alcohol in his young ministry. I have in my possession in my office an article that has to do with drinking for Jesus, that has to do where people go into bar rooms so that they can be a testimony for Jesus Christ and come on out and have a drink with us in the bar so they can win the people in the bar rooms. So what I'm saying to you, this is not out in left field. These are <coughs> this is all the way from one side that says 
any consumption of alcohol whatsoever sin, all the way to the other side of the coin, in my opinion, where you've got people who want to drink for Jesus and they're going into bar rooms. And I think that's pretty fair representation of the extremes of what we're dealing with. Uh, you will find, I will tell you this already in, in scripture, and we will see enough, I hope, in time, but that you will find in scripture that alcohol or wine is referred to as a blessing and good. You will also find in scripture, as you did tonight, that wine is a mocker and an indication that it is bad. Still others, um, you will find not so much the concept of drinking, but you will see a lot of scripture in relationship to drunkenness, which leads still others to take the position that drinking is okay, but drunkenness is not okay. So, having just put that down as a stat and getting everybody, I think by now I've stirred up everybody, I hope. So what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures teach? That's what we're really interested in. What is rights? And uh, why would you want to address this subject anyway, Pastor Dan? Pastors aren't going to address this. I guess because I'm concerned for the flock, to be honest with you. And because I, I believe that since it is such a prominent thing, it should be addressed and not avoided. And maybe the other part is I'm crazy. I don't know. But um, so what are we going to do? I will attempt with you as best I can, pulling stuff together, to be biblical, to be accurate, to be careful without getting bogged down with all that I, as I shared with you already, had to do to get prepared and will continue to do to get prepared in addressing it. Now, what does that mean? It will not be one message tonight. I hope at the most there will be three, but I'm trying to try to do it tonight, Lord willing, and next week. But we'll see what happens, okay? And in saying that, I would ask, as I have in some other areas, that number one, you be gracious. Number two, that you hear it all, that you don't just go off on a tangent with one of the things. My concern is not to please anyone that's sitting in front of me or anyone that might hear this message. My objective is to please the Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth, to be as careful as I can be, and not to get bogged down on the subject. So it is a rather daunting task, I believe. Now, having put that aside, where do we start? Or where is Pastor Dan going to start? As you know, and I just have been teaching the children this in the high school, the proper way to understand the scriptures is a literal method of interpretation. The literal method, and this was just on a test for them, is also known by another name. Does anybody know what it happens to be here as an adult? Huh? Well, that's the subject. It's the subject of hermeneutics. It is called the literal historical method, grammatical method. It is called the literal historical grammatical method, which means no matter whether you're in the New Testament or whether you're in the Old Testament, number one is to be taken literally. Number two, you will never properly understand it unless you understand it in its historical context. You will never understand it unless you understand it with its grammatical structure of what's the verb, what's the object, and everything else. 
obviously, which leads to context, and that's everything that we teach. Now, why do you say that? Because what I want to begin with, with uh, uh, for your understanding, because I think it's so important, is pagan worship. Pagan worship, Pastor Dan, yes. Both in Old Testament times and in New Testament times. If you don't understand this, you do not understand a couple of passages in the New Testament. Why? Pagan worship, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, had a clear understanding that in order to commune with a god, or in order to commune with God, that is, in order to worship him, in order to really have him understand you and you understand him in the pagan world, you needed to be involved in several things. What were they? You needed to be involved in gluttony. You needed to be involved in dancing. You needed to be involved in drunkenness. And you needed to be involved in sexual orgies. That is not my opinion. That is fact if you go trace history of pagan worship. A very essential part of their worship was that. It was to have a feast and basically indulge themselves in as much food as possible, in as much drink as possible, in as much sexual orgy as possible, and in as much dance as possible, hopefully to appease the gods and so that the gods would respond, are a god, to them. That led to what you have probably not just heard me or Pastor Stringer or others teach, which is truth, that a lot of the pagan feasts were nothing more than drunken feasts that also led to what you have heard of, such as temple prostitutes. Why were there temple prostitutes? Why were these feasts? It is because they were appeasing or attempting to appease. Now, we wouldn't agree with that. That's what they were doing. But pagan worship had to have those things involved in order to reach the gods. Okay? And in saying that to you, it's actually seen in Exodus 32. Now, I want you to go there. Exodus 32. I told you for tonight, that's a springboard verse in Proverbs. We will go through the passages of Proverbs. By God's grace, I will talk about drunkenness, and I will talk about wine and the fruit of the wine in, in a number of ways. Just bear with me. If you don't have this, you don't even have the historical background as to some of the feasts. Now, this is a lengthy passage, so I will not give total exposition to it, but I think you'll see what I'm saying. What has been taking place? God has called Moses to the mount, right? And Moses is going to be given the law, and he's going to be given instruction. After a period of time, Moses does not yet come back. That's where Exodus 32 comes in. And you won't understand this unless you understand the very brief, and that's a lot of material put into about three sentences, but unless you understand the way pagan worship worked. What happened in Exodus 32? Let's read it. You follow along. It is a lengthy one. And when the people saw Moses delayed, verse 1, to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Watch, come make us a god. This is pagan worship. 
who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off your gold rings, which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off all the gold rings, which are in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took uh, this from their hand and fashioned them, you notice, fashioned it with a graven tool and made it a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel. Now, we know that's an abomination already, but watch. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Watch, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So the next day, they rose early and offered burnt offerings. They brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. That's what they were doing. This was pagan worship. This is what they knew. This has nothing to do with God. It had nothing to do with the God that led them out. But Moses was gone, and they went back to doing what the world did for pagan worship. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once to your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. Have, they've corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside. Now, you might get focused and say, Pastor Dan, this is all idolatry. Absolutely. Don't miss what I said. You can study it for yourself. In the idolatrous movement and in the pagan worship were these factors. That was major to it. He says they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it, they have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, and my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Moses entreated the Lord God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out out of the land of Egypt, with power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out and killed them in the mountains to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind. This is amazing, the servant of God here, about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He brings them back to the promises. Your servants, to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all the land which I spoke I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind, and the harm which he, was, uh, which he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tables of the testimony in his hand. Tables were written on both sides. They were written on, the si on one side and the other. The tables were God's work, written with God's writing engravement on the tables. By the way, you want to talk about inspiration? Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, it was so loud, what did he say? It's the sound of war. Moses said, no way. It's not the sound of a cry of a trumpet. It's the sound of a cry of, uh, nor is it the sound of a cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing. They were celebrating. They were dancing. Watch. 
And it came about as soon as Moses came near to the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and the Moses, Moses' anger burned. He threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf which he had made and burnt it with fire, ground it with powder, scattered it from the face uh, surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. That's what you want, drink it. Now you can go on, I'll stop there. I think you got the picture. I know you're familiar with it. Why go through all of that, Pastor Dan? What's that got to do with the subject material? A lot. You say, how? You need to understand that that was pagan worship. And those things, drunkenness, dancing, the, and I'm not putting down everything here. I just want you to understand. New Testament, Old Testament times, that was the association. That was the key to their worship, to worshiping a deity. In New Testament times, uh, they expected that in the Roman and Greek culture. You can read it for yourselves. In fact, if you want to know who the god of wine is, by the Greek name, it's Dionysus. The Roman name, this should ring a bell with the English alcohol, Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S, Bacchus. Those were the gods of wine. And in the New Testament, it was expected that you would worship. It wasn't any different from what we're looking back in Exodus. Oh, they might not have built a golden calf, but as far as worshiping their gods, it had to be surrounded by this type of feast and all this stuff going on. Why bring that up? This was their life before salvation. Listen carefully. This was the problem in the Corinthian church. What? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. And there is volumes behind what's being said to you. I told you I'm just kind of narrowing it down. The Corinthian church, as you know, had all kinds of problems, but they came out of this Greek and Roman culture. Many of them. Now, some of you have been there to visit the land. There were all kinds of temples that were built to these gods that they would have. And as they came out of the culture, that is why you have this warning that is given by the Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10. We'll look at that first. In verse 20. Well, I'll go back to verse 19. You can go back. It's dealing with idolatry. If you look at verse 14, it says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, this deals with the cup of blessing, which is communion. Now watch, when you come down to verse 20, it says this. Uh, let me go to 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers of demons, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are you stronger than he? Are we? 
uh, excuse me, are we stronger than he? No, are we? What are we saying there? With the very brief background I gave you in the Old Testament, New Testament, that was still going on. And what happened is because of the feast and part of their worship, of pagan worship as Gentiles, this would have been part of their feast. Why do you think you had 1 Corinthians chapter 11? And get down with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among us. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat, is it not to eat the Lord's, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, excuse me. Why? For you are eating each, when, when you're eating, each one takes his own supper first, and the other is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Or do you not despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What was going on? You know the story. I've addressed it before. They were involved in getting drunk and gluttony, by the way, at the Lord's table. Where did they get that from? Their old life. And Paul was clearly instructing them, that is why you also have this. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So you understand the context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. We see all of that. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards. Now, Pastor Dan, you're dealing with drunkards. Yes, I will address that. But I want you to see that. No revealings, no swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? That was known and all associated with paganism. All of those things, not just drink, drunkenness here. All of that. And somehow the Corinthian church had gone back to what they knew. What was custom in the Old Testament? What was custom in the New Testament? And while they came out of that Greek and Roman background, <coughs> excuse me, in idolatry, believe it or not, it's hard to believe, but they carried it over into the church. And so even at their feast, when they were observing the communion table, what happened is there was absolute abuse of the Lord's table. People were going away hungry. People were getting drunk at the feast. And this was supposed to be honoring to the Lord. Why give us some of that history, Pastor Dan? Because when I, some of the things that I'm going to talk about, both tonight and next week, it is important that you understand, even when we talk about the word wine, you should not be thinking in terms of the wine that you can go down to the package store in Salem and buy. You say, Pastor Dan, you're going to get in a... I'll tell you why. I will get into some of that information. Let me give you a comparison from the scriptures so you understand what I am talking about. Slavery. Do you understand what the scripture says with slavery? There's no problem with it. Do you know that? Not just the Old Testament, the New Testament. You're saved in slavery? Don't desire to get out of it. Stay there and honor the Lord. You say, what? Slavery back then was not the same slavery that this country has fought to get out of. 
You say, what are you talking about? Let me give it to you a brief, and it is brief. In Bible times, slavery was considered social compassion. What are you talking about, Pastor Dan? People actually sometimes went to a household, Don sitting in the front, and they would say, can I be your slave? What do you mean? They would want that because they would have provided for them housing. They would have food, and in return, they would become that person's slave. To put it in a nutshell, even in the Bible, why do you think that after seven years, does anybody know what the biblical requirement was? They had to free them all. They had to offer them to be free. Why? Because it was seen as compassion, but they could not just take them over. However, many of the slaves ended up staying with the people. You know why? They loved them. Their, their owners loved them. And then there was a process where their ear would be put uh, and pierced. There's your pierced ears, by the way. Okay, and, and when they would pierce the ear, they would basically say, I will live and be a slave for you for all my life. It was totally different. That wasn't talking about buying and selling slaves that led to what we had in this country. Now, you do have situations where you even had Hosea went and bought his wife out of the slave market. So it came to become that. But the slavery that God was talking about was when you had a situation where they compassionately cared for that person and they loved that person and they were to treat them right and provide for them. In turn, they got uh, provided for them uh, their needs. In fact, some of the research that I did, this was a little bit of a surprise to me. I didn't realize it. Even the slavery that led to what we had in the United States Maybe some of you knew this. Did you know that the slave trade market was actually started by the tribes themselves? I didn't know that. Do you know how that started in Africa? Huh? Yeah, do you know why they sold their own? They used to battle one another as tribes. They used to fight, and then they found, why should we just kill them? Let's win and then sell them and get money. That's the truth. That's what eventually in time became, as you went down, the, the, as it expanded and led it to what happened in the United States about uh, uh, taking black folks and so forth from Africa, bringing them over in boats and everything else. That's not the slavery that you're talking about in the Bible. And if you don't understand the difference between those two, you're going to get confused on slavery and what God's view of slavery is. Why say all of that? It's the same thing with wine. It's the same thing in these areas. And the first part of the background I gave you was that was just part of pagan worship, drunkenness, immorality, gluttony. And it got carried over even into the church. So what are we talking about then? Let me give you some other facts here tonight. And again... I ask you for your patience to stay with me. I have tons of notes that I'm not even going to get to tonight. Then I have all my other notes that I'm ready to get to. But let's go. Some of the facts of history so we can improperly, we properly can interpret things. The wine of the Bible, first of all, did you know, and I'm sure you probably did on this, was very limited in its availability. 
Did you know that? It was very limited. It was grown by local growers. We still have some of that today. We have it going on in California. We have it a lot of the European countries, and I'll refer back to that later on, not tonight, but in Italy, for example, and the European, those are local growers. That's the way the supplies were, though. And from the best that I could do in researching it, as those local growers, including all the way back to Noah, and if you remember, Noah got drunk as he began to farm and got involved in that. But what they would try to provide for as local growers was somewhere between two and four days supply in the case of a community event. So the local growers would grow it to not only provide for them, but to provide for the community. And if they were going to have a big feast, so that it could last approximately a week. It said two to four days, but the idea, the concept really was a week. Do you know that that's what explains the wedding feast of Cana? Why did they run out of wine? Because the local growers and the supply that was there for the feast ran out. Why is that important? That is not what we have today. We have commercially produced alcohol that is virtually an unending supply. It's a big difference. Just in the quantity that's available. The quantity that's available in the world. Now as far as the nature of the wine, we need to understand this. There are a number of Hebrew words, there's a number of Greek words that are used in connection with the concept of whether it be grape juice, wine, whatever. <clears throat> but two things I want to get across to you in Hebrew in talking about the nature of the wine is the main Hebrew word that's used is, and I, pardon me if I don't pronounce this right, but I will try. Uh, yayin is the Hebrew word for wine in Hebrew or for mixed wine. It's the word yayin. The word shakar if I'm pronouncing it right, was the word for strong drink in the Hebrew. In the Greek, primarily you come across one word, and it's the word oinos that's used for wine. Now this one will set some of you on your heels already, but it is truth. All of the wine had the potential for intoxication, without exception. In other words, it all had a degree of fermentation in it. Whether it was wine, whether it was mixed wine, or whether it was strong drink, you do your history, you study it out. And I have the books in my office also, and I will refer to it, regarding the mixture and the ratios and so forth. But all of the wine had the potential for intoxication. I will tell you already, that is why you have so many warnings in scripture. In ancient times, all wine, all of it, whether it was strong drink 
or whether it was just the word wine, or whether it was the word mixed wine. All of the wine was boiled or mixed. All of it. That is why, and you know that some people cook with wine. Some people won't cook with wine because of conscience, but some people do. What happens if you boil it? A lot of the alcohol content is taken out of it. All of the wine in ancient times was boiled and or mixed with water. Let me give you just a couple of things tonight. It would not be good to end where I am right now. Uh, teens are still out there, and I'll only be a few more minutes. The usual mix. Now, you can get all kinds of statistics on this. But the usual mix was three to one. Three parts water and one part wine, which not according to my calculations, but according to statistics and their calculations, was about 2.25 fermented or intoxicating level. It was three to one mix. Strong drink, as it appears in the Bible, was half water, 50%, and 50% wine. That's what strong drink was, 50-50. The only way, from the research that I could do, that you could get drunk on that wine was what? How do you think? You had to drink an awful lot of it, which is exactly what you find in the Feast of Canaan. They've been drinking for days. Usually you bring out the good wine after they're finally drunk. Why? They would have to indulge themselves. That's not surprising. Why? When I give you just the brief, brief background that I gave you, that it was part of their feast because their feast of pagan gods went on for long periods of time. And they had to drink a lot of it. Even in New Testament times, some Greeks, from what I was able to understand, tried to get undiluted wine and would drink it. You know what they were called? Barbarians. That's a fact. Anyone who would ever consider drinking undiluted wine was considered a barbarian. At the Jewish Passover, it is, it is approximately two to three parts water with one part wine at the Jewish Passover. Wineskins. Do you know what was put in the wineskins? Wine, yes. Boiled wine. You know, does anybody know what the result was most of the time? It was almost a paste. It was not like you think it is. It was a paste. Why? It was put in a wineskin so that they could carry it with them. Why? To use it in one of two ways, and I'm going to make a comment on this in a minute. One was, 
if they got thirsty so that they would have it to mix with water on their journey. The second was, this was to my surprise, so they could use it on bread as a jelly. It's interesting. I didn't know they had peanut butter and jelly back then. Didn't say anything about peanut butter. But you know what I'm trying to tell you is that was the wineskins, and that's why they would also burst, because they had boiled it out, and it was such a solid paste most of the time. Why did they mix it with water? I want you to get this. And with this, I'm probably going to have to wind it down tonight. And uh, yeah. OK. Why did they mix it with water? This is facts. One of these surprised me. Can you guess? Hold on to that one. That's the one that surprised me. No, well, not just the water. Yeah, yeah. Number one, there was four reasons that they mixed water and wine together. First of all, to conserve the supply of wine. They mixed it with water so they could conserve the supply because, again, as they grew this on their farms and in their vineyards, and they would, we might think that it just got produced and sent overseas. That's not the way it happened. Local farmers would grow it, local vineyards would grow it, and in order to conserve as well, they would mix it with water. The second one, you said foul water. This one was a surprise to me. To increase its flavor. I don't know, I'm not a wine connoisseur. You might, that sounds strange to you, it did to me. What I found out was that by taking wine and mixing it with water, it releases the flavor of the grapes and the wine and reduces the bitterness. Okay, I'll take it for what it said. Thirdly, as an antiseptic, what do you mean? To sanitize the water. It was used to sanitize the water back then. They didn't have water purification systems out of Home Depot. They couldn't buy stuff like that. Again, it makes sense even with the wineskins that they would take. As they would go, they basically would drink out of streams or water that they came across. And that water back then in Old Testament times and in New Testament times did not have the purity that it had today uh, that we could have through filtering systems. And so to sanitize the water, they would use wine. And so part of the mix was to be an antiseptic to the water. It was also used, and by the way, that is an example with Timothy when we get there. He was told to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Why? Because he was not a wine drinker. He was probably a water drinker, which created probably within his digestive system some difficulties. And the antiseptic was also used to heal. They used wine. If you think for one moment, just to put it right out there in honesty, that when you see the story of the, of not the prodigal son, sorry, of the, uh, help me, look at my notes and it's really, huh? Yeah, the Good Samaritan. I said I should look at my notes. The, the Good Samaritan. And if you think they just poured grape juice to heal his wines, you are just trying to make an argument that's just not so. Just not so. All of their wine was boiled. 
All of their wine was mixed, but all of their wine had the potential. And because of that antiseptic, it could heal the wounds because of the content that was also there in the wine. And so it was used as an antiseptic, thirdly. And the fourth reason that they also mixed it with water was to prevent drunkenness because it was only the barbarians who would think of taking an alcoholic drink that was not mixed with water. Those are facts. Those are things you can study for yourself. Those are things, and you'll have to go to a lot of sources like I did, but you can get that information. And you'll find out that those are some of the reasons that they mixed the wine with the water. It was to conserve it. It was to bring out the flavor of it. It was so it could be used as an antiseptic to kill the germs in the water and so that they could use that to heal people. And also, they mix it to prevent drunkenness. In ancient times, the way I would summarize it from, and in Bible times, even in the New Testament, from what I could understand, and I welcome you to show me differently, but in ancient times and in Bible times, wine, which was the main alcoholic drink that you would find in Scripture, was designed for safety purposes. It was designed for protection. It was designed for healing. It was never designed for death as an, or an instrument of death. It was always used in a very profitable way, seen as a blessing and for the safety and protection. The only time it was seen in a negative way was in its abuse for drunkenness. In its abuse for drunkenness. It was not designed like ours today. One last thing in closing for tonight, and I thank you for bearing with me as a congregation because we only looked at one scripture passage. We will look at the other ones in Proverbs and other passages in the Old Testament in New. That's why I said it'll take at least two, possibly three messages. But you need to understand that a modern reality is, if my information is correct, distillation our distilleries did not come about till approximately 1,000 years after the New Testament. 1,000 years. Distilleries, unlike the Old Testament and New Testament, taking the wine and mixing it with water so that the wine would purify the water and the alcoholic content would get reduced, distilleries do just the opposite. Distilleries are designed to increase the alcoholic content. I could not find anything even on their websites that would say anything other than that. It is to purify it in their sense, but it is always to increase the alcoholic content. So that wasn't even known in Bible times, folks. It wasn't until, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but that's, again, my research. It wasn't until the 19th century. Now, we're into the 21st, so that would have been the 1800s that people even understood the reality of what bacteria was. Why say that? The purification systems that we have today, the purifying of things. It really wasn't until the 18th century that I was even discovered. So what I'm saying tonight, just in outlining it, 
I'm not giving you the whole position. I'm not talking about it. But we need to understand some things. First of all, when we're talking about wine, which again was the main thing that would have been considered alcoholic, we're not talking about the same wine that we're looking at that you can go to a package store that was distilled and that was brought down to what it is today. In fact, I have the statistics, and I'll hold it for next time. I have it in front of me here someplace, of the exact amount of alcoholic content in one can of beer, in one glass of wine, and I took that from their sources, not from mine. And, and I'm just only going to try to present the facts so you see what, what we're dealing with here. But when we look at the scriptures, it was in the pagan feast that people would get drunk. And I said drunk very clearly. It was in the pagan feast that they would try to appeal through the deity, through that gluttony, through the drunkenness and the immorality. And it was the danger that crept into the Corinthian church so that Paul had to warn them not to even mix the cup of God with the cup of demons. What a cup of demons? Because there was wine. There was wine at the table at the Corinthian church in all reality. Now, there were some, and I didn't get into all of that tonight, where sometimes there was a mix of 20 to 1. There was all kinds of statistics, and you can read about that. I don't want to get bogged down in all of that. But the normal was 3 to 1. The normal was 3 to 1. And it was done to purify. It was done as a cleansing thing. It was done to heal. It was a th done as something that would be profitable. Let's hold it here for tonight. We're at a quarter past already. Hopefully, <laughs> this is probably not the right terminology. This will whet your appetite. <laughs> My apologies, but you know what I mean by that, to want to come back, and we will deal with it more. And I am going to be quite open with the scriptures. I will compare to some passages where you'll see that the Lord says that the fruit of the vine is a blessing. And, and how are we to handle it and to try to make it practical uh, as well? And why is it a marker? And what are the warnings? Were there any cases where absolutely people could not drink? Because there, there are. And I will address that as well. And then how are we to approach the subject as we move forward in our day and age? Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you and praise you that it is the word of God and, and our salvation in Christ that sets us free, free from the bondage of sin and guilt, free from uh, being caught up into the world, free with the truth. And Lord, help us to see that the truth should never be something we fear. The truth should never be something we shun, even if in reality it's contrary even to some of our thinking. And we thank you and praise you that the scriptures do address this area and will address this as we move ahead. And I pray, Father, you'd give us understanding because even as we have sung this morning, it is our desire, and I believe it's the desire of everyone in this room, to want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to want to do what honors you. And I pray that you'd help us to do that in every area of our life, not just in this one. And I pray that it would abound to your honor and glory and just be a thrill to our own hearts as we see you work. Guide us as we continue to study this topic, Lord willing, next week. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.